It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode 39 in a series called Spiritual Lessons from World War I. Uh, if you're just picking up now and just encountering this series, I would highly recommend you to, uh, to listen to the 38 before it. I know that could be a little daunting. But even if this is the only one you ever hear, I hope that it impacts your life. Uh, I am, we're at a, a very critical stage of World War I. We're actually near the end. Uh, we have uh, gone through quite the ordeal. And episode 42, which is just around the corner for me, so the next Friday, so a week from now, is when we're actually finishing this series up. So that gives you sort of a, a place or a context in the drama. So we're near the end. But right at this point in time in the story, where we're going to pick up today, all seems lost for the Allies. And it's at a very dark place, and that's very common in the Christian life, that we will walk through corridors of extreme darkness, and sometimes before the light breaks forth, that's when it gets the darkest. And it's oftentimes right when we're ready to let go and give up, which is right when God's actually ready to do His work. And why God seems to work at 11.59 and 59 seconds, you know, some of us have wondered about that. And yet one thing we do know is that his timing is perfect. And the way he choreographs all of his storylines are ideally suited. The only way you can recognize that is usually in hindsight, where you look back and you're like, he is so good. And yet when you're in the midst of it, you need to remember that you're going to say, he is so good you need to remember that he will come through and he will prove himself faithful. And though, even though in the moment you can't see it, just remember that as you progress through this, you're going to look back on this and say, my God is so good. So his timing is perfect. This is called the allied answer. In other words, the allies are appearing to be defeated. The Americans have been mustering their forces, but they can't seem to get them there in time before the allies are going to crumble. And so could you imagine doing all that the Americans have done over this past year to not just declare war, but then to prepare for war and to start sending what is going to be millions of men across the Atlantic and then to get there uh, late and to have the allies already have fallen, which is what it actually looks like it could be because Ludendorff is going to strike the Western front with Operation Michael and it looks as if it's going to win. And the Kaiser is convinced that it, he has one. And so these represent very critical times in our life. And so I sort of left it not really at a cliffhanger last time, but if you were listening closely, you recognize that I didn't actually share what was going to happen. You just sort of have this idea, especially if you know history, that the Allies, I think they win uh, World War I. I mean, that's just you know a concept that sort of lingers in the air, but some of you are a little still cloudy on that. I, do they? Well, I don't want to give anything away, right? However, it sure does look like Germany and the central powers are going to win this at this exact juncture. So as we uh, start, I want to uh, sort of, it's going to seem a little off topic at first, but it's going to be very, very important for the topic at hand, and that is the art of wrestling prayer. So prayer is something that all of us are in here are familiar with. But wrestling prayer is a form of prayer that I want to introduce you to. And it is the kind that Jesus 
reveals in Scripture. When he's teaching on prayer, he's going to give a story of a neighbor who uh, is in need of bread. Uh, someone has come to his house and he needs to feed them. And so he goes to his neighbor next door and starts knocking. And then he starts, he keeps knocking. And then he keeps knocking. He keeps knocking. And you remember finally the guy yells out, he's like, go away, I'm in bed with my family, which is a very strange statement uh, to start with. But let's move past that. And he just keeps knocking. Kink, 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 kink. And to all of us here, our social sensitivities are on red alert because it's like, uh, the guy doesn't want to come to the door. He's already told you to go away. Just go away. And yet Jesus himself is the one telling the story. And he says, keep knocking. If you know that what you need is in that house, then don't stop until the door opens. And he says, this is how we are supposed to go after him. Isn't that weird? Because Everything in us is wired to say, no, 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 so sorry. I was trained by my parents well to not be rude. And yet there's something about the kingdom that Jesus says, I want you to do that. I want you to knock on the door of heaven until it opens. Don't stop. Don't stop even when it seems like you've been told no. You keep going. Even when there's silence, you keep knocking. And then he gives the story of the widow and the unjust judge. And she comes in and pulled, I always picture her pulling on his shirt sleeve every day. And he's like, oh, lady, will you leave me alone? And she will not leave him alone. And Jesus says, like that. That's how I want you to pray. That's how I want you to go after it. And so in the Old Testament, we're going to see the picture of Jacob. And that's oftentimes depicted as the great picture of faith, the great picture of overcoming. That's when the name Israel is going to be given to Jacob, is when he holds on and will not let go. He will not let go even when he's requested to let go. No is the answer. You have what I need and I have nowhere else to get it. I refuse to look elsewhere. You are my source. And God seems to say, that's what I'm looking for right there. Circle that, Christians. That's the way I want you to appropriate the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to say something on the cross, and he's going to say, it is finished. Now, those words have lingered in the air for 2,000 years, and many of us have had the quizzical gaze at the cross going, it is finished. And then we look around and we see a sin-ridden you know, ridden world uh, that seems to be falling to pieces, and we're like... <clears throat> You know, if it was finished, wouldn't it look a little better than this? And yet, what Jesus is saying is exactly true. It is finished. But what is finished isn't the work down here. What is finished is the work in heaven. That which was needed to be accomplished at the cross was done. And it is a work that is completed in heaven. We have been secured in heavenly realms. The purchase of our very bodies, our very beings, has been accomplished in heaven. Our redemption, our atonement, all of these things are given to us. However, now in this realm, it is imperative that we respond to the work that is accomplished in heaven. And when we do, with the eyes of faith, we look upwards and we see a finished work. And then we reach up with faith into that heavenly realms and grab it and pull it down to this earth so that the realities of heaven are real down here. Do you remember Jesus' sample prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That pattern of 
taking what is accomplished in heaven and bringing it down here into these lives is the operation of the church. This is what our prayer, our ultimate prayer is, come Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha in the Greek. Come Lord Jesus, come. In other words, you've accomplished it. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Now come to this earth so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're praying for. And the Spirit and the bride have been praying, come, for 2,000 years. Should we let go? Should we give up? Is he not going to come? He's going to come. So every generation, we hold on and we pull and we pull down that reality to this earth. And then we hand it off to our kids. We say, keep pulling. And ultimately, you will see heaven come to earth. And that's what we're participating in right now. And it's called wrestling prayer. Most prayers don't take 2,000 years to answer. However, there are certain prayers that will take a while. There are other prayers that you reach up and you grab and you have. And so it's critical that we understand this action because this is the essence of winning the military battle spiritually. We must recognize that we have weapons of warfare that are mighty, and we must know how to reach up into heaven and grab them. I use the picture of the grappling hook. You ever seen one of those like metal claws, and it's attached to a rope, and you like swing it, and you throw it up into heavenlies, the heavenlies because you see a promise up there, right? And so this is your faith. Prayer is an extension of faith. If you really believe, then you'll ask, right? So whew, you toss it up into the heavenlies, grab a hold of the promise, and then you start yanking. And that's prayer. That yanking is praying. And how do you do your praying? You pray in the authority of Christ, not in your own gumption, but in the authority and your position that you have in Christ, and you pull, and you pull, and you pull. And what happens if it doesn't seem to be coming down very easily? Do you give up? Most people do, and that is the problem. You see, when you've been given a promise, you pull, and you pull, and you pull. And if it doesn't seem to have moved, you keep pulling. And you keep pulling, and you keep pulling. How long should you pull? You pull, and 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 you pull. And then if it still hasn't come down, you pull, and 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 you pull. See, some of you are starting to get dizzy here. <laughs> you pull until it gets to this earth. That is what it means to be a believer. When God has said it, he will do it. Your job is to believe and to pull. If God promised that there was a treasure beneath your feet, and then he gives you a shovel, what would you do? You know, I remember having some kids come up onto stage for, an early, for a church service once, and I asked them that question. I said, imagine that I said that there's a treasure right below you, and then I gave you a shovel. And you have to sort of imagine this isn't concrete underneath this carpet, right? And you know what? Every single kid, without exception, said they'd dig. Well, that, that makes total sense, doesn't it? Well, that's what God's saying. He's like, oh, there's a treasure there. And he hands us a shovel. That shovel is prayer. And he says, what are you going to do with it? Well, if you've promised and you've given me a device to excavate and to get at that promise or at that treasure, then of course I'm going to do it, right? So imagine you dig a couple scoopfuls and you don't see anything. You know how many Christians set down their shovel and say, yeah, I tried digging. It didn't work. When in actuality, God didn't say how deep it was. He just said it's beneath your feet. 
So you dig, and you dig, and you dig. Uh-oh, guys, here we go. And you dig, 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 and you dig. And you dig, and you dig, and you dig, and you dig, and you dig. And you dig until, you hit the treasure chest. This is Christianity. Now, prayer is the operative way that we showcase this faith. We grab a hold of God and we don't let go. See, many of us have been too passive in our faith, where we see something and we esteem it and then we ask, but we ask feebly, sort of like, God, I don't know if you really want to give stuff like this to me because you know, I'm really not that you know, great of a character, and, but you know, could you maybe, if you want to, do this? And as a result, we give up very easily, too, because the devil comes in and shoves us and says, he doesn't want to give you anything. We're like, I, I know, I know, I, I really shouldn't ask. And we feel sheepish for our asking. We feel almost guilty for asking, when in actuality, you're commanded to ask, and this is how you honor your God, is to go after that which is in heaven and bring it to this earth. You bring it to this earth in your body, and you, we bring it to this earth in our body as a corporate body of Christ. And we bring it to this earth and we showcase on this earth the realities of his finished work. All right? Welcome to the spiritual military. This is our job. So if we were in boot camp, we're handing each other shovels. We're handing each other ropes saying, grab a hold, start pulling. Right? These are our weapons. The weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. When we yank on God's promises, it's amazing, but we also are destroying, tearing down what the enemy's trying to do in this world. Our praying has great power. So welcome to 1918. Everything is hanging in the balance. The time when you need to rally your soul afresh is when it appears that you're pulling, you're yanking, you're digging, whichever metaphor works for you, hasn't accomplished anything yet. And if you're the allies, boy, do you feel that. You have entrenched and you've dug in and you cannot seem to break through against this enemy. And you've been doing it for four years now. And you've lost millions of men in this. It's cost billions upon billions of dollars, if you want to look at it in, in modern uh, terms. And every nation is in debt. Uh, Russia has just collapsed to a revolution. They're out of the war. France is hanging on by a thread. The only reason they're still around is because they know America's coming. They're just trying to hold on until America gets there. Great Britain is in such bad straits debt-wise, and they've had the U-boat war that's been knocking out their shipping, so they've lost, again, billions of dollars worth of shipping materials. Ships just sunk by the U-boats. And they're like hanging on by a thread. America, could you guys uh, <clears throat> hurry up? And that's the way many of us feel in our spiritual life. It's like, God, I can't keep going. Have you ever said something like that to God? Isn't that a funny statement? God, I can't keep going. Well, this whole Christian life was not because of your ability in the first place. Isn't it funny that now you're looking at your ability to keep going? Say, but God, I can't. And he's like, hmm, interesting observation. I could have told you that a long time ago. You can't do this from the start. And I understand that you're weak right now, but it's in and through your weakness that I will prove my strength. Hold on to me right now. But God, I don't even have a grip. When you have a penny of faith, what should you do with it? Hoard it? Bury it? If all you have left is a penny, invest it. Invest what you do have. It's the principle of energy, too. When 
I used to use the illustration when I'd come home from a long day and I was totally exhausted and then my kids were ready to wrestle. It's like, you have got to be kidding. After a long day, the one thing you don't feel like doing as a father is wrestling. You want to like collapse and fall asleep. And that's the classic picture of a father. You ever notice that? The, the picture of the father that comes in and just says, hey, everyone out, you know, and he turns on the TV and he, you know, falls asleep in his chair with his, with his newspaper. He's like, no, I don't want to be that guy. But God, I understand that guy. I understand how weak and how feeble we can feel in the natural sense. But that's when you go to supernatural fuel levels. You see, you have access to supernatural fuel, but you have to end your allotment first. You have to give up everything to get to the supernatural. You can't just lean on your own gauge, but God, I only have this much left. Yeah, it is true, but you know how much I have? I, God has unlimited capacity to support you in the fuel department, but you have to know that, and you have to trust him, and you have to put your grip on him in that hour of desperation. So we're going to do a quick review just to catch us up. So it's March of 1918, and Ludendorff, Eric Ludendorff, there he is with his scowl on the screen, he says, we must strike at the earliest moment before the Americans can throw strong forces into the scale. We must beat the British. And so this is called Ludendorff's final card. It's called Operation Michael, March 21st, 1918. And it is impressive. Nothing has ever taken place like this. And it decimates the Allied line. I mean, they are literally... They can hardly even function because of the artillery blast. They're in a stupor. They're dazed. And they, most of them just surrender. They can't even fight. They're, they're like in some weird state because of the bomb blast. 3.5 million artillery shells are going to fall in a territory over five days. Nothing has ever taken place like this. This is like everything going in. Ludendorff's going to take his best soldiers out of all of the remaining soldiers he has. And he's going to stick them at the front and make them his spearhead. They're called the stormtroopers. And he's going to spend his best men. What happens when you spend your best men? You don't have them anymore. And he's going to lose all of those men because he is desperate. But then it's going to look like it was worth it, right? So here we are in the, the map of 1914. And I'm just going to put a star right there. This would be along the Western Front, which is going to go from Belgium down along the border of France, just a little in, and then down to Switzerland. And I, sorry, I didn't put that on the, on the screen for you guys, but that's where we're going to be, and that's sort of the center of where Operation Michael is going to hit. So Ludendorff, even though this is an imaginary quote, you get the idea of what he was doing, because this is what he said. It's just is a paraphrase. Cull the very best from the army. Bring me the strongest. I'm putting them at the front. We are building a fist made up of Germany's, Germany's stoutest. March 23, 1918 is declared a national holiday in Germany by the Kaiser. So remember, it started on the 21st. The 23rd is a national holiday. It's like we won this thing. We just broke through the Western Front. Everyone's been trying to do this for four years, and Ludendorff just did it. I mean, this is a massive victory. So Kaiser Wilhelm II, we call him William, says, it's all but over. We won. And the British are feeling the exact opposite. It's all but over. We lost. So this is one of those moments that is the proving ground of our soul. In our culture right now, if we were going to talk about winners and losers, I would say if we were looking at who's won over the last couple years, the advancement of darkness in our culture has been massive. If you're in the conservative camp, 
you would say that we haven't had much good news, okay? We've had our blips, you know, and I can mention a few, but I'm not going to right now, unless this becomes a political statement. Uh, however, we've had our blips of encouragement, but there's, they're few and far between. And for most of us, we've felt like the enemy has just run rampaging across this country, has taken over systems, taking over uh, where, you know, before there was at least a bastion, a stronghold of truth still. It's like it's all gone. And when you look at the church, if I was going to grade the church today, I would say, eh, I don't even know that I'd give it a C. I think we might be in D, maybe F territory. That's how unimpressed I am. Okay, and of course, it's probably good that I'm not the one that's the final grade uh, on these things, but I am not impressed. I've seen the church my entire life. I've worked in the church for, for decades of my life, and I've known the leaders of the church. And all I can say is, hey, where is everyone? What's going on out there? Who's ready to stand? This is our hour. And you sort of feel like it echoes back. It's like, what's going on? And I know the church is out there. But for whatever reason, we seem weak right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, what do we do? It's not altogether different right here in the storyline. So in the darkest moment, what is the correct response? Do you give up on knocking? Do you give up on begging the unjust judge? Do you give up on holding on to the angel of God in that dark night? Do you just throw up your hands and say, well, obviously God doesn't want to help? Or... Do you do the opposite? Do you press in with your faith? Do you say, God, this is the hour when faith counts more than any other. I am not letting go. So uh, this is a quote from, there's, there's a book that uh, a soldier gave me when he knew I was going to do uh, this series, and it's called Great Battles of World War I. This is the book he grew up with, and he says, I think you, you'll enjoy this. First time I'm actually quoting, I've been, I've been looking through it the whole time. Uh, time because it's a great book full of all sorts of pictures but the first time i've quoted it everything seemed to be in germany's favor yet the very speed of her advance had brought her armies near exhaustion so even though germany is winning germany is actually very fragile right now which is not altogether different than what is happening in the enemy ranks oftentimes in those moments when the boast is coming out it's a plastic boast you see, he doesn't actually have the power to back it up. We're the ones with the power. You see, the Americans are literally about to reach in full strength and hit. And so the same is true for us. We have supernatural power given to us in the name of Christ, but the devil wants to make us think that it doesn't work. Just come on. You might as well give up. Throw up the white flag. Give up this whole business. It's time for an allied answer. The counterpunch. Now, I gave a message earlier in the series called the French counterpunch. And a counterpunch is a boxing term. And usually it's the seasoned veterans, you know, the, the guys that have a little gray on their temples that have been boxing maybe a little longer than they should have, right? But they, they, when they were young, they used to swing. And they just wanted to show off their, their, their strength and power and knock someone out quick in the first round. But as they've gotten older and they're not as fast as they used to be, they, have, they recognize they have to use their mind a lot more, which if you've been a boxer your entire life, that still isn't, <laughs> you don't have a lot left there either probably. <laughs> However, they have smarts, and so what they're going to do is they're going to study the guy who's swinging, and they're going to let him do all the swinging, and they're going to figure out where his weakness is. And so sometimes they won't throw a punch for three rounds. 
And everyone's like, come on! You know, they're yelling, old timer, you, you, you passed your prime. And then after this young guy starts tiring, then boom, right at the perfect moment, they get in the counterpunch. The guy swings, opens up, and they get him. I've used a lot of boxing. Why do I know so much about boxing? That's exactly what's needed here. The allies have had so many swings thrown at them, and they can't stand much longer. But they have something. They have something waiting in the wings. The allies, you know, for all their mishaps, they're smart. They really have some cunning that makes me laugh out loud. The British, like I've said, with Room 40 and some of the things that they have going in their intelligence network is so interesting to me. And it's really fascinating because the Germans think that everyone is dumb, that they're fighting, that they're the smart ones and that everyone else is dumb, especially the British. And they underestimate the intelligence of the British. And as a result, the British play that against the Germans. So they want to con the Germans into thinking that they're in retreat mode right now. So at this moment, they really are falling to pieces, but they're also pulling together a counteroffensive. At the moment when a counteroffensive would be the most difficult, when you're in retreat, they're going to put together a brilliant maneuver. So here's what they tell all their, their uh, soldiers. Keep your mouth shut. Possibly the most unexpected offensive movement of the entire war. The Germans were completely surprised. So this is uh, from the Canadian Encyclopedia. It's interesting because you can study war history from all sorts of different national perspectives where they want to talk, like America, if you study it here, you hear about what the Americans did, right? But if you study it in New Zealand, you get a whole bunch of New Zealand uh, you know, trivia and knowledge of what their soldiers do. And Canada is the same. And they're always bragging about what their guys do, right? Which I think is great. I think it's, it's a lot of fun to read. Uh, so this is from the Canadian Encyclopedia. In early August, the Allies tricked the Germans by appearing to weaken their front line so that German officers expected no assault. Troops moved to the front lines at night to fool the enemy. So they move away their troops during the day so they can see it because everything is now being surveilled. You, you have flyovers where you can see what's going on. And so they see troops leaving. It's like, oh, wow, uh, we've got them. And meanwhile, they're going to move them back under the cover of night. And so they're actually trying to get Germany to think that there's no way an assault is going to take place here. False moves were also made in daylight amid much noise, dust, and bogus radio communication. And so they created a whole false network of communication knowing the Germans are listening in. And so they create all this you know, noise of you know, panic and the fact that they're pulling away and they can't do this. I don't think we can last much longer. Meanwhile, the Germans are starting to bloat with confidence. Secrecy was so important that the soldiers saw the warning, keep your mouth shut, added to their service and pay book. So whenever they get their service book or their pay book, they'd open it up and it says, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> That's pretty good. <clears throat> so this is actually from World War II, but it's one of my favorite pictures from my World War II series. And I figured I'd show it because it's the same brilliance in World War II that they're going to use in World War I against the same opponent, Germany. I mean, it's just funny. But that is a fake tank. It's called a dummy tank. So there's a real tank off to the left, and there's a dummy tank off to the right. And so what they're going to do before the, the uh, operation, it's going to take them across to Normandy, uh, the Normandy invasion that they planned for over two years. They're going to create all sorts of fake things in a certain part of Great Britain, 
And so all the Germans are flying over. They're like, oh, I see where they're marshaling the troops. That means they're going to attack up there at Calais because there were two key spots that they could attack and Normandy was the least likely. And so they wanted everyone to think, they wanted the Germans to think that they were gonna do it up north, so they created all sorts of falsifications. They had all sorts of leaks to the spy network of the Germans, which they knew who they were, Mutt and Jeff. And so they would like sneak off these like, oh, oops, you know, and they would leave a note sitting there and Mutt and Jeff would pick it up and it worked perfect and all the Germans fell for it and the Germans were not ready. I mean, they still had troops at Normandy, don't get me wrong. However, they were not ready for what hit them at Normandy because they knew, they knew that uh, Great Britain was going to strike north. A dummy tank, isn't that great? Germany's Black Day. It's called the Battle of Amiens, August 8th, 1917. It's going to be, oh, about a week long. And this is the quote from Ludendorff. This loss has Germany depressed down to hell. It's the black day of the German army in the history of this war. Everything I had feared and of which I had, I had so often given warning has here in one place become a reality. See, everything shifts in one day. August 8th of 1918, everything shifts. It's, it's so extraordinary that it's hard to put words to because if you're with the allies, you've been feeling bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And it's like, what I want to say is, hold on, Christian. Hold on. I don't care if the bad news keeps coming. Hold on. Your God has a counterpunch, always. When the enemy comes in like a flood, it says the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. God always has an answer for the flood movement of the enemy. Always. Our God wins in the end. He's already told us that. Our God wins in each situation in our lives when we respond in faith. And it really doesn't matter if it appears that we lost. For instance, Jesus died on a cross. And you could say, wow, yeah, that sure does appear to be a loss. Is that a loss? That was a triumph. And so is the death of every saint that is done and lived out in faith. In other words, even though the natural ramifications in this earth might mean suffering in our body, it might mean imprisonment, it might mean even death, that does not mean we lose. We gain ground when we function in faith, holding on. Liddell Hart, who's a British soldier and then a war historian, describes the Battle of Amiens. He says, the Battle of Amiens was the most brilliant victory ever gained by British arms in the war. It is, it's very impressive. They are going to use all their technology up to that point. Remember the tank? Uh, I had a message called Codename Tank. And uh, they're going to have developed their tanks. They have built thousands of them by this time, but they're going to release them in mass here. And so it's the first war where they're literally going to do a blitzkrieg. In, in World War II, that's what Hitler is going to use. He's going to use a blitzkrieg, which is like a tank movement attack. Where did he get the idea? He got it from right here, from the Battle of Amiens, from the British who were going to take these tanks, 600 of them, and attack the lines, and they're full of soldiers, too. And so could you imagine? I mean, that's a great way to get. So they, they launch an artillery movement just right in front of the oncoming tanks, and then they have the tanks come through with the men and then more infantry following, and it works. So over 600 tanks strike back at the Germans and totally shock them. There's a picture of the Battle of Amiens. Uh, isn't that a cool picture? <clears throat> That's what tanks used to look like. 
So here's another quote from Anthony Livesay. All military history teaches that victory can only be won by surprise, by engaging a demoralized enemy, or by trapping one that is infinitely inferior in numbers or weaponry. The British victory of August 8th was achieved by surprise, and the victory itself in turn demoralized the German staff. It also demoralized the ordinary soldiers who surrendered in their hundreds, sometimes to a single man. Perhaps more fatefully, it led to deteriorating morale in Germany herself, where food shortages had already undermined civilian confidence in victory. The Germans, as if by reflex action, rushed reinforcements to the front, although this merely reduced their reserves to negligible strength. The war would continue for some weeks yet, but both Ludendorff and the Kaiser had come to the same conclusion. The war must be ended. Isn't this interesting? Literally, not that long before, you have the Kaiser calling a national holiday, saying, we won. And now everything has shifted. And what I want you to do is just sort of take that like a piece of candy and stick it in your mouth and suck on it. Because this is how the kingdom of heaven works. What you can't do is give up hope in the dark moments. What you have to do is be a believer. It doesn't matter if Lazarus is in the grave. You do know that Jesus promised. He said, this sickness will not end in death. And you're like, but he's in the grave. And he, he stinks now. It's been four days. I get it. But I also want to commission your soul to be a believer, to trust your God, who is the God of both the dead and the living. He is the resurrection and the life. And if you trust in him, he will show forth his life in your circumstances, in your situation. So here's a quote from Eric Ludendorff. He's spoken to the Kaiser after the disaster at Amiens. We have reached the limits of our capacity. The war must be terminated. I didn't say terminated very well. Terminated. So again, I'm, I'm referring to the Canadian Encyclopedia. I like this, uh, this writer from the Canadian Encyclopedia. Indeed, Amiens sparked the Hundred Days Campaign, the successful Allied push that would drive the Germans backwards until their ultimate defeat and result in the signing of the armistice on 11 November 1918. And so this is called the Hundred Days Campaign. It's going to start with the Battle of Amiens, but now they're going to have a breakthrough. And the Americans, this is what the Americans participate in. It's sort of funny. They have hardly any time in the war, but they get to be a part of the victory. Doesn't that sort of stink that we sneak into the war right at the end and get to, it's like, yeah, you just needed us. Uh, and I don't know that it's just because, in fact, if you ask the British and the French, they'll get upset. And the Canadians and the Australians and the New, Zeal New Zealanders, they would get upset if Americans claim that they helped win the war, right? Now, everyone knows we did help. And it was a crucial additive to the mix. Fresh troops with the swagger of John Wayne. There's no exaggeration. <laughs> because that's what the Americans came into the war like. We are like, I mean, because remember, this is that time period of the, the cowboy and the, the renegade. It's, it's like, this is, how, this is our culture in America. And when we show up, we're here to just win it. Okay, guys, what's taking you so long to win this? And so the Americans show up. Now, we were terribly unprepared for the type of warfare that was over here, and we lost a lot of men because of our ignorance in battle. We didn't know how to fight a war like this. The British and the French, the Canadians, the, uh, the Kiwis and the Australians did. And the Indian troops, they were familiar with this. We weren't. However, everyone would still admit the Americans were very impressive. 
It seemed like we feared nothing when we came over. And I don't know if you heard that description of the big farm boys in these brand new uniforms. You know, everyone else has these bedraggled uniforms. They've been fighting in it for four years. And then suddenly the new uniforms with these huge hulking farm boys from Iowa <laughs> come in. And these, these British had never seen someone so big. These are the biggest people they've ever seen in their life. And I like that. You know, it makes, it makes me feel good as an American. It's like, yeah, I'm not that big, but, you know, hey, I like that. The fine art of victory. Unlike the Allies' plan in World War I, the kingdom pattern is marked by guarantee. What the Allies were doing didn't have a guarantee to it, okay? It's earthly warfare. We're talking spiritual warfare when we're, when we're talking about our lives. And what's interesting is we have a guarantee. When we go to battle, we have a guarantee of outcome. That is an amazing thing because in human warfare, you don't have those guarantees, you just do the best you can. It's based on human ingenuity, whereas the spiritual battle that we fight has a guarantee. And so I want to go through basically five points that guarantee victory. So five key ingredients of kingdom victory. Trust the commander's word. When the commander speaks, trust it. You see, there's a difference between being in an earthly battle, and you're still supposed to heed your commander's voice in an earthly battle, but sometimes your commander can be wrong or misinformed. In this situation, our commander is never misinformed. When the word of God speaks, it's right. Trust it. If you want victory in this life, trust the commander's word. Two, move when he says move, stop when he says stop. If you heed and allow him to lead you through this, run! Run to the trees. You run. If he's a stop right there, stand still. Stand still. Stop right there. And he will preserve you for the battle. He will be a shield about you when you heed him and listen to his leading. Number three, wield faith as your secret unstoppable weapon. What we do is we're believers. You see, it's not that we are flexing physical muscle we're flexing spiritual muscle, and our muscle is faith. I believe the word of my God. I believe that he will win this. I believe he will come through. I believe he hears my prayers right now. We hold our ground in faith. We keep pulling on the rope. We keep digging, even when the world around us is like, you're an idiot. You're continuing to dig? Yes, watch what my God will do. He will always prove faithful. Number four, press and press and press your faith until the breakthrough comes. Pull, 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 dig, dig, dig. Don't stop. Knock, knock, knock. And if you do, victory is sure. You must continue until the breakthrough. Number five, and rest and rejoice in his victory the entire while. Here's one of the beautiful perks of being a child of the Most High God. You can rest the whole while. There's no need for fear or anxiety. It doesn't matter what the devil's doing. You can rest in his victory. God's, God's got this. God's in control. Yeah, there's no need to fear. No need to be anxious. God's got this. He's going to win this. You see, when the, spirit of the Lord, uh, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against it. No, no, uh, no weapon the enemy fashions against us will prosper. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. You see, we stand on the word of God and we can rest in that. There's actually a peace the whole time in the midst of battle. You know, these guys in World War I don't have that same confidence. These 
A lot of these German leaders, I'm sorry, not just German leaders, a lot of these war leaders, these generals, they're having nervous breakdowns. Ludendorff is just about to have a nervous breakdown. Uh, and uh, not exaggerating, Moltke at the very beginning of World War I, the German leader had a nervous breakdown. They literally can't handle it psychologically and emotionally. It's too much weight for a human to carry. However, what you have been assigned, you don't have to carry. God will carry it for you, even though it is crushing to a human. You can carry it because God will carry it for you. Your job is to believe and to rest in him. Allow him to be God. You don't need to be God. So the ultimate fighting machine. Now I'm going to mix two characters in the Old Testament. I'm going to say this is the ultimate fighting machine. And I'm going to mix uh, Jacob and Jehoshaphat. Now, I have a message next week for the students, not in Daily Thunder, but just a, a student message uh, about Jehoshaphat. So I don't want to steal too much away from that because that's a special message. Uh, but Jacob and Jehoshaphat. So when we mix them together, I'm calling it Jacob Fat. Uh, and so this is the ultimate soldier is, is Jacob Fat. And so I don't know, like a, a motto, we're burning the Jacob Fat. That was just like, hey, what are you doing? We're burning the Jacob Fat. In other words, I'm I'm functioning as Jacob and Jehoshaphat. That's what I'm looking to do. And so Jacob fat, I don't know if it's going to survive this message and go any further than that, but at least for our message, we can enjoy it. So what does that mean? Like Jacob, we hold on and wrestle until the breaking of day. And like Jehoshaphat, we believe the promise, reckon the victory, and set our singers out in front. You see, it's the combo package of both and. You hold on in faith and you rest knowing that God's in complete control. If you combine Jacob and Jehoshaphat, you've got something very, very profound going on in your soul. So Jacob-like, persistence wins the day. Most of us have never cultivated the art of persistence, but persistence is the, is the key to success in every area of life. It is. You study people that change the world, and what you're going to find out about them is they are persistent, they will not give up. They will keep trying. They'll get right up after a failure and keep going. And we could say, name one great leader and you know, try and find that they don't have this. This is a quality of success in a human sense. But it's also because it is a quality of success in the spiritual side of things. That's what it means to keep knocking. That's what it means to keep pulling on the judge's shirt sleeve. That's what it means to keep pulling on the, the rope. That's what it means to keep digging, to persist. You do not stop until. And if you get that attitude in your soul spiritually, it will change your life in every regard. So how many times do you knock? Is there a limit? How many times do you yank on the judge's sleeve? How many times do you pray? How many times do you pull on the rope? How many shovelfuls do you scoop? Is there a limit? Because you know how Peter says, how many times should I forgive this guy? Uh, and, you know, seven? And that's a, that's a pretty grace-filled offering, you know, to say I'll forgive him seven times. That's a number of completion, right? You could understand why he'd be thinking that. And Jesus then shocks him by saying 70 times seven, which is his equivalent of saying, you never stop. Now, if you forgave someone 490 times, and you came to Jesus and said, okay, I did it 490 times, you know what Jesus would say? 490 times 49,000. Okay, in other words, whatever gets the point across to you, there is never a point where you stop. There is never a point where it's like, oh, end of uh, forgiveness there. 
Oh, end of faith there. I stop believing at this point. Or I forsake my hope at this point. Nope. We continue until the breaking of day. Jehoshaphat-like, confidence and victory always. He's surrounded by three armies. He's a dead man. I mean, there's no way Judah's going to make it out of this, guys. And yet, he's given a promise that God's going to fight for him, that he's going to defeat the enemy the next day. So they're supposed to march out to battle knowing that God's going to win it for him. So my question for you is, if you knew that God had said to you that he's going to fight this battle for you, but you still need to march out, what would you do? Well, hopefully, hopefully you'd pull a Jehoshaphat. You see, this is what Jacob fat is. It's not just persistent, but it's also confident in victory. And so as a result, he's going to set his singers out in front, just proclaiming the goodness of God. His mercy endures forever. Just watch what our God is going to do. And this is your life in a nutshell. You're called to this, to burn the Jacob fat, to actually declare to the heavenlies the reality. You will not relent, you will not stop, and you have full confidence that God is going to do it. Did he not promise? Will he not do it? Yes. And as a result, you have a robust strength in this natural realm, and you will find victory. If my God said it, that's good enough for me. So in Streams in the Desert, the October 27th uh, in edition, uh, Lottie Kalman Cal says this, Stand up in the place where the dear Lord has put you, and there do your best. God gives us trial tests. He puts life before us as an antagonist face to face. Out of the buffeting of a serious conflict, we are expected to grow strong. The tree that grows where tempests toss its boughs and bend its trunk often almost to breaking is often more firmly rooted than the tree which grows in the sequestered valley where no storm ever brings stress or strain. The same is true of life. The grandest character is grown in hardship. So many of us grumble and moan that we're on the, the Western front and life is so difficult for us. Like, God, why couldn't I inherit a life of ease? Why did I have to inherit a life of battle? Because this is where the world changes right here. God has set you at a place to make a difference in this world. And it's to engage hostilities. And so God will move his soldiers just like a general will. I want you over here. Well, that's where the enemy is. Uh, yes, and your point? It's like, of course, that's what a soldier is supposed to do. He's supposed to go right to where the enemy is and hit him. And so should you be surprised when an artillery shell goes over and blows up near you? It's like, whoa, God, where have you brought me? The firmest character, the strongest character is developed right there. You see, when God takes you through trials, just like that oak tree, that oak tree that is going to have winds beat against it, rains beat against it, is going to have a deeper root system and a stronger, stouter stuff than the sequestered tree. It's actually the secret of an oak tree. You want to see a strong oak tree? Well, you're going to see one that has been buffeted. That's the strongest one. You are called to be oaks of righteousness in this generation. However, you must realize your secret isn't found in being sequestered in some cozy hamlet somewhere. It's to be exposed in God's battle. God is bringing you to the front, and he's saying, I've built you for this, and you have all that you need for life and godliness. I will protect you. Do you trust me? Yes, I do. 
And then he's going to encourage us to stay persistent that even if it looks like the enemy's winning this battle, you know that your commander will never lose. You must trust me even when it looks dark. Trust me, we will win this. Be ready with your answer to the powers of darkness. So on the screen, it says no. Now, this is one of those strange uh, techniques that I've developed over the years. And understand that I'm standing in Christ and that my simple answer to the movement of the devil when he you know, shoots his bullets at me is no. And you can say, now, Leslie used to ask me when I would do this, she's like, what are you doing? I used to actually have an entire head movement with him. I'm like, no, no. And it was my way of like a baseball player, you know, at, at batting, you know, when the guy pitches something, it's like, no. And hitting that attack of the enemy, whether it is a physical attack, whether it is a financial attack, whether it is a relational or emotional attack, whether it is an ideological attack, I don't care what it is. My answer is the same. You, you pitch it my way and I'm hitting it with a no. I refuse it. I resist it with the shield of faith that I have. You can't get in here. You can't stop me. I'm a soldier of the Most High God. No, 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 no. And I tell you what, guys, it works. And Leslie, you know, as I was going through that one season, which I know that she walked through with you guys, we call it fortification, where I was standing for her health. And in a 52-day period, I had 28 attacks on my health, just as I'm standing for her health. It was one of the most bizarre things I've ever walked through. And what I would say each time a health thing would come against me is I'd simply say, no. And Lester was like, what are you doing? What is your technique? Because I was just, I had a swagger to me. There really is a strength when you begin to recognize that you are, you are enfolded in God's grace. You have a shield of faith that repels all the fiery darts. And when you know that, it's like, wow, talk about getting your game on. I wouldn't want to mess with the church of Jesus Christ if I was the devil. However, the reason he messes with us is because he knows we don't know our position. He's playing on our ignorance. But when you understand your strength and your position, start walking. Start moving forward. And the enemy can't stop you. Now, he is going to put whatever landmine out there. He's going to put whatever booby trap he can find. He is going to try and bait you towards to, and tempt you off the track. He's very good at what he does, and I don't want to diminish that. However, God is very good at winning. Here's a Charles Spurgeon quote. I bear my willing witness that I owe more to the fire and the hammer and the file than to anything else in my Lord's workshop. I sometimes question whether I've ever learned anything except through the rod. When my schoolroom is darkened, I see most. As you grow in your faith, you're going to recognize as you look back, that your greatest growth curves were not when life was easy, but when life was hard. It was not when you had your vacation, it was when you had your engagement with that trial or that challenge or that difficulty, and you had to apply faith to it. And this is when you spike in your growth. What should that do inside of you? If you see that, what does it do? First of all, I'm not saying that I'm just going to expect that all of you are excited for your next trial. However, if you could recognize when that trial comes, you could smile at it and say, okay, God, let's do this together. All right, I, I'm, I'm ready to grow. I've been praying that you would grow me. So I see that you're excited to do that too. So 
let's do this. And as a result, you can rejoice. You can have a delight in the process as opposed to in just the finished product. Many of us say, okay, when, when we finally sign this Treaty of Versailles and the war is over, then I'll, I'll laugh again. You're supposed to laugh now. You're supposed to be joy-filled now. You're supposed to have peace now. These are present tense realities of the kingdom of God, not future ones when these circumstances all line up. Don't fall for the devil's bait to put off the presence of God. It is with you now. God wants to actively live within you to show forth his kingdom, his smile, his swagger, his confidence now. In the darkest moment when it looks like Operation Michael is sweeping across France and is going to win Paris is being bombed with artillery shells. People in the droves, millions are leaving Paris. It looks like the Germans are going to win. And suddenly, everything shifts. You see, God is one of those characters that loves a good storyline. And he loves to see things get really bad, so then there's no hope except for God to step in. And that's, I mean, the greatest stories in history all fall into the same line. All is lost, and then boom, the little guy rises up and pulls it off. All right, we're going to finish with this. This is the May 7th uh, entry into Streams in the Desert by Lottie Kalman. This is a very, very powerful quote in light of what we've shared. No temptation in the life of intercession is more common than this of failure to persevere. I'm going to read that again. No temptation in the life of intercession is more common than this of failure to persevere. So let me read it with a different word of an intercession, which means to stand in the gap. No temptation in the life of a soldier, a spiritual soldier, is more common than this of failure to persevere. See, this is where we lose the battle, is we stop. We listen to the enemy's bait. He seems like he's winning, and he says, set down your arms. Surrender. Never. You see, that is the principle of soul. I don't know if you guys have ever heard uh, Winston Churchill's speech. Uh, I don't remember how. I, don't, I can't quote it even though it's two words. I don't know if he says never, 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 or if he says never surrender, never surrender, never surrender, never surrender. Did you guys, does anyone know if, which one it is? Oh, so it's never, 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 never. He gets up and gives this speech. I don't remember where it was, but it was one of the most famous speeches of all time. It's not even very long. And then he finishes, never surrender. And that's his speech. Probably a standing ovation. I mean, very well said, Winston. However, that's a speech that every single one of our souls needs as well. Never, never. Keep knocking. Keep pulling. Keep digging. Oh, saints of God. No temptation in the life of intercession is more common than this of failure to persevere. We begin to pray for a certain thing. We put up our petitions for a day, a week, a month, and then receiving as yet no definite answer, straightway we faint and cease altogether from prayer concerning it. This is a deadly fault. It is simply the snare of many beginnings with no completions. It is ruinous in all spheres of life. The man who forms the habit of beginning without finishing has simply formed the habit of failure. The man who begins to pray about a thing and does not pray it through to a successful issue of answer has formed the same habit in prayer. To faint is to fail. Then defeat begets disheartenment, 
and unfaith in the reality of prayer, which is fatal to all success. The art of wrestling prayer. Hold on. Don't let go of that rope. God has given us an assignment as a generation of Christians. And it's not to flounder, to fumble, and to fail. It's to believe. It's to hold on to his promises and not let go of them until we see the reality of them in this earth. I don't care how dark it looks right now. I don't care how backwards the church seems to be living and functioning. I don't care that it appears that social correctness is ruling within our ranks as the church of Jesus Christ. I know it is not ruling in heaven. And what I want is I want the atmosphere of heaven in the church down here where we have the fear of God once again. Well, how do we get it? If you have a vision for it, ask for it. If you have a burden for something in the church, don't just have a burden. Pray that burden. Grab a hold of that rope and pull it down from the heavenly realms into this realm. It's God's desire. It's the reason you have the burden. And don't stop praying until we see this accomplished. And that's the great secret of the body of Christ. If we keep holding on and we persevere, boy, the enemy turns white-faced. See, he has no defense against the praying saints. So let's use our great weapon and let's win this thing. Father, I pray that you would teach us the art of wrestling prayer and that you would teach us how to hold on. Lord, those places where we have let go of the rope in the past, I pray that we would return to it, that you would freshly convict us and remind us of that burden that you've given us in the past that you say, let's return to that. Let's return to what we've already covered, what ground we've already walked across. And Lord Jesus, may we see your heart and your burden and your love and your kingdom power revealed in this earth in and through the church of Jesus Christ. Revive us, Lord Jesus. Steer this country towards righteousness. Do what only you can do in our midst. We ask that you would hang Haman on his own gallows. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bring the counterpunch. We pray that you would establish your truth in this hour, in this time, in this generation. Lord, we ask for the battle of Amians spiritually in our world. We want to see you raise up a standard against this flood of the enemy. Come, Lord Jesus, come and do what only you can do. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.